The principal liturgical celebration of the Christian year in liturgical churches is Easter. The second most central celebration is what we're doing today, Christmas. Easter was the earliest, Christmas was the next earliest, and then the preparatory seasons around those seasons came after that. But for Anglican Christians, Episcopalians, Christmas has always held a special place in their hearts, and it has been compelling for us theologically to reflect, ponder, pray, and attempt to live out the reality that God became a human being. And by extension, that possibility is held out to everyone to reflect their divine nature to each other in the world. Every Christmas, I talk about four affirmations. The goodness of our humanity. We affirm that in Christ we can achieve the highest of our human potential. We affirm that it is possible to be joyful. And we affirm that Christian people are to be about peace. So when we speak of our Christian anthropology and that it is possible to affirm the goodness of our humanity, we say that in the biblical witness and in the great tradition with a capital T, we have ample evidence that the preferential option that God has for all of us is to affirm our goodness. At the end of Genesis, the the first chapter, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. A number of early church fathers used to say something like, man became God, God became man, that we might become God. So it has been said uh, that way by more than one person. When we say that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, we mean that we now can cooperate with this goodness at the center of each of us, affirm that we have been made for a purpose, that we're called to respond to being made in God's image, and that we accomplish God's work by modeling what it means to be the best human beings that we can be. And before that sounds too highfalutin, most of the time for us, the way that works itself out are through the commonplace activities of our own lives. We have no other way to do it. And so if we think sometimes of overly heroic uh, means to this end, we lose sight of where the field is in which we develop our own spiritual maturity. If we say we have been made in the image and likeness of God. In the epistle that Ralph Qualls read to you, there's a line at the very beginning that says, he bears, Jesus bears the very imprint of God. And if you read it in Greek, it's the, it's the language and terminology that has to do with a, with a person making a coin and stamping the coin with a hammer and impressing the image onto the coin. So elsewhere in Hebrews, the author says, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity. And so by extension, we become reflections and transparencies of God's grace and love and the humanity of Christ. Father Thomas Keating, 
who uh, is a favorite of mine. Here's a great book that uh, he wrote. He wrote in a number of them, but one is called The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience. And in this, in this book, he says, the humdrum duties and events of daily life become sacramental, shot through with eternal implications. Jesus has joined the human family and has not just subjected himself to the consequences of the flesh, but also introduced the principle of redemption from all of the pre-rational programs for happiness that center for human beings around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. If you stop to think about your life, those are the three areas that we have the most difficulty with on a daily basis. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. We also affirm that it's possible to be joyful. And what that means is the slow, steady realization as you, as you mature and develop some practical wisdom that joy is not a perpetual state of euphoria. took me a long time to uh, uh, know the difference between happiness and euphoria. Joy is the sure and steady confidence that the ambiguities, the uncertainties, and conundrums of life will come into surer and clearer focus as you live. And the benefit of this will, not only will you become less anxious, you will be able to commend to other people the ways and the means to get there too, with them, supporting them. It's possible uh, to affirm that we can be joyful. And finally, it's, uh, the, the fourth affirmation is that uh, Christian people are about peace. Now, when we read in, in the New Testament about peace, it's not in Hebrew, but the people who wrote it, many of them knew Hebrew, and they used the word shalom. That would have been the word that Jesus would have used. Shalom is not a word that in peace in English does any justice to at all. Here are some of the meanings. Um, if you were to look up like a Hebrew-English lexicon, and it would say shalom. The definition would be completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. And this shalom of God is both a willingness to bring these qualities to our relational life but also to bring that, that to bear on our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states. So when the church speaks about this in community terms, which is the beginning place, always, we can transfer that in terms of our internal reflection and say, how do I become, achieve the highest of my human potential by bringing some serenity to those things that are at war in me. What does Paul say? I find myself in the position where the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I do, I don't want to do. But because of God's grace, uh, he was able to rise above that and to commend it to other people. We're to be ambassadors for peace. 
Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. There is no other way that that can happen in the world. And I'll have more to say about that in a few minutes. I thought I'd say a word because on Christmas Day, we read a different gospel. On Christmas Eve, we read about the birth of Jesus and we read about the shepherds and we read about the following of the star. And on Christmas Day and on the first Sunday after Christmas, we read from John's gospel what is known in biblical scholarship as the Johannine Prologue. Keep that on ice and you can amaze your friends. They may say, oh, do you read the Bible? (laughs) So the Johannine prologue is talking today about Jesus. And he is speaking also, uh, the writer is speaking about what the goal of his gospel is going to be. And what all Christian people yearn for. And how we understand it in terms of how it affects the way we understand the practice of Christianity. It's called mystical union. Dr. William Countryman, the former professor of New Testament at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, uh, says this about what we mean when we say that. Because it's sometimes very very complicated for people uh, to talk about. What does mystical union mean? It always seems like, to me, kind of twilight zone talk, you know? But when Bill says, uh, speaks about it, he said, I take mystical union to describe an experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. At one level, this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it, in which case it is called mystical enlightenment. Any of you who ever saw those Joseph Campbell uh, episodes on PBS know that Joseph Campbell said when he was on the track team at Columbia, he had a moment when he was standing at a track meet where for a split second he knew instantly where he fit in and who he was in relation to that thing that is so much bigger than we are. At another level, it may be an experience of full knowledge of another specific being, in which case it is called mystical union. Union may be understood as implying a complete dissolution of the human who enters into it, or may appear as the complete opening of two realities, one into another. Centering prayer is what Father Keating talks about is exactly that. Realizing that you're you, that God is God, and then all of a sudden as you apply yourself in dwelling in the presence, you realize that you are one. One thing. So John's Gospel is talking about that and also describing in really philosophical terms about who Jesus is when we talk about who he is in terms of his uh, divinity and his humanity and so forth. And he refers to Jesus as the Logos. Logos is translated mostly as word, but it can also mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, standard, or my favorite, the organizing principle. 
the organizing principle. So what is affirmed in this gospel is the intensity of the relation between God and the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I have been bugged about something for about two years. It's one of my uh, crazy interests. And I haven't said anything about it on Christmas, but I'm going to do it uh, today because uh, the church for centuries in the West has emphasized uh, two things and considered it absolutely essential to support this and and, uh, stand up for people who don't. One is the deity of Christ that we need in some way to stand up for the deity of Christ. And we also understand that somehow we're only here passing through and then we're going to go to somewhere else. In a few minutes, you're going to recite the Nicene Creed. And in one section of the Nicene Creed, it says, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. And then just after that, it says, For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We move immediately from Jesus' birth to his crucifixion and death. N.T. Wright, the great English New Testament scholar, said, Well, you know, there are four Gospels, and we have Jesus being born, which we celebrate now, and then we have the cross and the creed. What about what he calls the middle bits? Right? How then must we live? What in the world was he doing here before all those things happened? And the Gospels are replete with accounts of what that is and by extension, what Jesus came to do. Some people have thought, we have for many years in the West, that Jesus was either a social reformer who did neat stuff and died too early, or he came here to die in order that we could go to heaven. So everything we're thinking about is to go there, right? Think about the implications for social uh, and economic issues in this country. If we know that God is somewhere else and we're going to go there, it makes it much safer for us to do here what we want, to do whatever it is we want to do because God is absent. And Jesus is here in his earthly ministry in the Gospels and and declaring the presence of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, we say. Now, kingdoms don't play too well, and certainly in the United States in 2013. But what he's talking about is a way of being and relating that if we want to, wish to, yearn to, long to, be joined to the Savior... To understand, we have to have a part in all this, not somewhere else. Not somewhere else. So when you read the New Testament, you realize that what Jesus is talking about is that the kingdom is here. That we're part of the kingdom. And what we do is important. What we do has consequences. God needs each one of us in big and small ways to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. 
And really, if you read the creation accounts in the Hebrew Bible, you realize they've always understood it this way. God is not somewhere else. God is here in his space. And we are here with him. That's what churches and temples are all about. God dwells in here. And God dwells out there with you and through you. And the whole purpose of this enterprise is to come to some realization that that is an important way in which we can live as Christian people. You and I can labor in big and small ways to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. Where it is easier for us to live the affirmations. So as we go through the 12 days of Christmas, remember Christmas is 12 days long. It's not just one day. Think about the affirmations. Think about how you can be an ambassador since God is making his appeal through you. Amen.